the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Last time I brought back the series, Oh, That Verse Means That, begun in January 2022. And friends, I take no pleasure saying I devoted 31 programs to bring to light texts that were misread, mistaught or explained, or misapplied. We scrutinized verses we believed meant one thing, but discovered they meant something different. If you missed our last session or want to go back to the podcast archives for that initial series, just go to faithtalk1360.com. Well, friends, we're working under our umbrella subject, Can Nothing Really Separate Us? We're probing Romans 8, 35 through 39. Session A was subtitled, The Suffering Factor. Today's session B is subtitled, The Love Factor, because we've been groomed to believe the phrase, nothing can separate us from the love of God, automatically means nothing can separate us from God. So let's just recap last time the phrase we bark out so cavalierly, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's not even in the Bible. We've assumed this text's meaning, so quote it as if that's what the text says. And some poor Bible translations add fuel to the fire. But I still say, shame on us, because, friends, the Bible has a story to tell us about love. It's crying out. Actually, it's screaming out to tell us it's story. But what do we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and average Christians do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. Again, I'll say, shame on us. Friends, we'll begin today by reviewing the Bible's understanding of love, grasping biblical love. Only by appreciating the shades of meaning behind Bible terms can we confidently tell the right story, the Bible's story, and not our story, that may be influenced by prejudices, human and religious, preconceived ideas, and modern or skewed ideas we force on the text. We should be drawing out what the text is actually saying and meaning in its original setting. Now, I realize, friends, this may take some extra work, 
But doesn't God's word deserve this level of respect, this level of devotion to truth, this level of protecting his word from flawed or agenda-driven interpretations? Do we cavalierly and authoritatively bark out what we think a verse means? Once again, let's wear our detective's cap, get our pocket spiritual magnifying glass, and strap on first-century sandals, because we're tackling a hot potato passage. Today's focus is the love factor, how best to understand the love of God and the responsibilities and obligations that accompany biblical love. So keep your seatbelts fastened as the ride of our lives continue. Before we proceed, let's review last time's four-pronged approach. First, us in Romans 8:35 and 39 forces us back to verses 13 through 34, the immediate context, to identify us as suffering Christians. Second, verses 19 through 28 show that creation and humans are mutually suffering, including Christians. Third, in verse 37, there's, in all these things, the Greek means both this and these, and directly ties in with Paul's lists. And fourth, neither and nor, in verse 38 and 39, are tethered to these lists, those 16 conditions or situations spelled out. Notice the words neither and nor. There's no attached or vague nothing that we can, that we can make a generic nothing to mean whatever we want it to mean. Friends, we do the scriptures a great disservice when we make them tell our story. Plus, there's that phrase near the end of verse 39. You know it, right? Nor any other created thing, which can be translated, nor anything else in all creation. My personal preference is nor any other created thing, since any is in a part of speech that can also mean anyone, a certain one, someone, even thing, which strengthens the phrase created thing. And here I'll say, friends, contrary to the idea floating out there in Christendom that we humans are created things, so we can't separate ourselves from God's love. This is ludicrous. Even a respected study Bible has a note here that says, Romans 8 ends with a ringing declaration that nothing, absolutely positively nothing, can ever separate us from God's love. For Paul, this truth is a fact worth shouting about. Really? Friends, I get no pleasure saying shame on us, but shame on us! I just explained that the word nothing is not in the text at all. Rather, neither and nor are used, and both are tethered to Paul's two lists. Well, let's get down to where the rubber meets the road. Let's unwrap an incredible word in our Old Testament and take a deep look at biblical love, because we Christians sure muddy the waters when it comes to differentiating between human and biblical love. We're blessed to have English translations, and they are still a powerful read. But I'm here to say, friends, digging a little deeper beneath the surface and unearthing the Bible's original languages, we'll see our English translations come alive in ways we'd never expect. For instance, take our single English word love. Here's some ways we naturally use it. I love hot dogs. I love my car. I love my pet. I love my spouse. I love my family. How about I love my job or I love my church. Even I love God. Well, one key Hebrew word for love is chesed. The transliterated spelling is K-H-E-S-E-D, but said with a soft K, 
chesed. It's such a remarkable and awesome word that Bible scholars complain it's hard to translate into English since there's no direct equivalent in our English language. Chesed is one of a small group of Hebrew words for love. But for me, this one packs the biggest punch because it describes God himself. It's sprinkled through the Old Testament from Genesis to Zechariah some 250 times and over half, 127, are in the Psalms, the key Psalm being Psalm 136. So become friends with Psalm 136 in its 26 verses, the phrase, his love, his chesed endures forever, appears 26 times. Even the King James translators realize they need over 25 English words to attempt to adequately get across the meaning of this rich and all-encompassing word, chesed. Well, just 20 are overwhelming enough. Chesed carries these words and ideas, kindness, kind love, or loving kindness, mercy, favor, or grace, goodness, benevolence, devotion, compassion, generosity, as in generous love or loving generously, unchanging love, faithful love, inaction, loyal love, covenant love, committed love, steadfast love, unfailing love, graceful love, undeserved love, and tenderness, Ouch! And many are camouflaged in our English Bibles due to all the contexts they appear in and the synonyms used. Friends, these words make me want to scream, I can't possibly live up to this kind of love. There's no way I can meet the standards of loving. And I'd be right, because with man this is impossible, but with God it's actually possible. From a purely human vantage point, and with only human resources, we'd all fall miserably every time. But thank God for his divine resources that give us divine assistance. Let's take courage in Peter's words in Second Peter 1, three. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And this knowledge is not head knowledge, but full personal knowledge that assumes an ongoing relationship. A neat thing also happens in Micah 6, 8. You know this verse, right? He, Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, has shown you, O man or woman, what is good and what the Lord, Yahweh, requires of you to do justly, love mercy, said, and to walk humbly with your God. Whoa, wait a minute. God requires something of us? Do good? Act justly? Love mercy? Now, before I even unpack love mercy, I'll bet you're thinking, this is Old Testament stuff. We're not required to do these things. We live under grace now, right? Well, friends, I'm sorry to break the news about the New Testament grace's requirements. Take John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So these breadcrumbs, these morsels of truth make us wrongly conclude that Moses brought the law and Jesus brought grace. So now we live not under the law, but under grace. Law and grace are now opposed to each other. But friends, in seeking the whole counsel of God, 
There's Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, and I'll add, in Jesus, that offers salvation to all people. It, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And the you is Titus, whom Paul sent to oversee the believers in Crete. Well, back to Micah 6, eight and love mercy, a unique combination of two Hebrew words for love, which literally say, love, love, since mercy is our word, as said. The NAS concordance coined a phrase for this first word, love, saying it can mean love sick. It's as if Micah is telling us to become love sick for love, love sick for chesed, love sick for God's love. Phew, let's take a moment and wrap our minds around that. From our Old Testament, we learn chesed represents God's undying covenantal love relationship with his chosen people, Israel, and additionally to key people whom he makes certain promises. Friends, of those 20 or so English words that make a valiant attempt to define chesed for us, one was favor or grace. Grace is embedded in this word. So please don't tell me grace is absent in our Old Testament. It's through chesed that grace appears there some uh, 250 times. Friends, I hope we're appreciating this brief walk through our Old Testament since chesed love will be a key factor as we shift to our New Testament because the essential question that emerges is how do these Jewish believers in Jesus communicate the good news of Jesus being their Messiah and Savior to both their fellow Jews and the Gentile world? You know, that pagan world of Greeks and Romans, heathens. After all, with the possible exception of one writer, Luke, the New Testament writers were Jewish. Have we ever thought about this, friends? How will these new Jewish believers choose to share this chesed love of God, especially to a Greek-speaking audience? And here we'll have to put on first-century sandals, see with first-century eyes, hear with first-century ears, and think with first-century minds. Basically, we'll have to plant our feet in the first-century world of the New Testament. But before we dip our toes into the Greco-Roman world, let's clarify a misperception perception we might have. To do this, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, which contains what's known as the central declaration of the Jewish faith, recited twice a day. But let's pause here, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to a word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners from a word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and a word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the Word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Well, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
This Hebrew word for love includes human love toward God and may be translated as show love or show your love. In other words, and you shall show love or show your love to God with all your heart. Then verse 6 adds, these commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. What's striking in verses 4 through 6 is that they're tucked in the middle of the second half of chapter 5 and what follows in the second half of chapter 6, where we find statements like, These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments. I give you all the decrees and laws you are to teach them to follow. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. Friends, this tells me we've missed the central declaration of the Jewish faith, that at the center of our lives and acts of service should be our love for God. Out of our love for God, we demonstrate or show our love for him by obeying his word. Does this ring a bell, friends? A teacher of the law once approached Jesus, asking, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, The most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, here's a teaser. Both words for love in Jesus' reply are agape. Apparently for Jesus, the two most important commandments are loving God and loving people. And interestingly, this teacher of the law replies to Jesus' answer with, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow! Are you hearing this, friends? A teacher of the Mosaic Law admits love supersedes sacrificial offerings, even the animal sacrificial system? No wonder Jesus responds to him with, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Earlier, friends, I asked, How might the new Jewish Messiah followers choose to communicate this chesed love of God to a Greek-speaking audience? To answer this, we must not only wear our detective's cap, but wear our first-century thinking cap. Because, friends, Jesus just did it in his reply to that teacher of the law, and we just rolled right past it. And why I took time earlier to expand on Deuteronomy 6.4, since Jesus quoted it in Mark 12. Well, friends, it's time to be wowed by the amazing word choices that existed in the first century Roman Empire, especially in the Greek language. There's a saying, the Greeks had a word for it. And first century Greeks sported eight words for love. Back then, if you said to a fellow Greek or Roman, I love roasted goat, or I love feta cheese, or I love my neighbor, or I love my children, or I love my wife or husband, that person would understand without question which love you meant by your word choice for love. If only our English language had as many situation-specific words for love, right? I think of the late Tina Turner song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Apparently for God and Jesus, love has everything to do with it. At this juncture, I'm going to give a Reader's Digest lesson here. 
Of the eight words for love in Greek, four were more common in daily life. You may know one or more of these, agape, phileo, storge, and eros. I'll review them in reverse order. Eros, from where we get our English word erotic, was so defiled in the first century that the Bible writers didn't use it. Instead, they chose pornea, where we get porn and pornography, to communicate sexual immorality. Storge referred to parental and familial love between parents and children. In the New Testament, it's only used in negative form, meaning loss of family love. We see this in the end-time prediction of 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, through 5, teaching that it's not just love that's diminished, but family love. Phileo forms the root of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and also means friendship love, love between friends. Finally, there's agape, a curious choice, as it originated in the pagan religions. It was co-opted by the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Agape's noun form was a title for the female fertility goddess Isis. Well, on limited occasions, it meant a person favored by a god. Did you catch that, friends? Favored? A pagan deity shows favor to a person? Shows grace? In these instances, it carried the meaning generosity demonstrated by one for the sake of another. Are we connecting the dots yet, friends? Favor, grace, generosity? These were elements in the Hebrew word for love, chesed. So agape becomes the perfect word choice for first century Christ followers to use, especially those whom the Holy Spirit leads to write our New Testament. The gospel elevated agape to a loftier level than it held in mere classical Greek literature and the mainstream mind. For Christ's disciples and future Christ followers, Agape came to mean a love that's given for its own sake, wanting nothing in return, and a love that seeks only and always the absolute best for the other person. Whoa! Have we connected the dots? Are we thinking what I thought when I saw that list of all the English words needed just to define chesed? How overwhelming to think we can meet the expectations of this kind of love. Personally, I think we fall short because we don't realize we're not manufacturers. We're distributors of God's love. We're not the source of God's love. We're channels of God's love. And hallelujah, Scripture counsels us to grow in agape love. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul urges those believers to excel still more. So, friends, love has everything to do with it. Per Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love, agape, the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Where's our allegiance? To whom or what are we devoted? 1 John 2.15, do not love, agape, the world, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. James 4.4 reiterates this, you adulterous people, adulterous in the sense we're spiritually defiling true love. James alludes to Hosea 3.1. Don't you know that friendship, phileo, with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
James isn't done yet. He adds, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail over their sins. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. We're called to pursue love and righteousness. Proverbs 15.9, Matthew 6.33, 1 Corinthians 14.1, 1 Timothy 6.11, 2 Timothy 2.22. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul's missionary partner Demas deserted him, having loved agape, this present world. In Revelation 2.4, Jesus critiques the Ephesian church. I hold this against you. You have left abandoned, forsaken, departed from your first love, agape. Psalm 119 mentions laws, words, decrees, commandments, precepts, and statutes. Yet in verses 97 through 104, we read, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated, made a partition, severed you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Hebrews 10.38 and 39 say, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back in apostasy, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction or perdition, eternal ruin, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Jesus defined who shall never perish in John ten twenty six through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Note the qualifiers, them and they. So can nothing really separate us? The one thing missing in those two lists in Romans eight thirty five through 39 is sin. Sin's not a created thing. It's a condition resulting from disobeying God's laws. Wanton, willful, and continual sinning, I'm sorry to say, will separate us from God. Whether that becomes eternally is up to us. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program, and we'll close with an email where you may write me. Podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com under local program podcasts. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net. A Word from the Word is aired in over 70 countries. Friends, please join in supporting A Word from the Word so we can become fully funded. Contact me at the email you hear shortly. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. Remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at awordfromtheword at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Three-star 
retired general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.